0: Yeah, that's really what I try to do, is to bring those other aspects of, of an adventure, motorcycle ride, or vacation onto the screen. You know, that there's so much that goes into this this sport or this form of recreation that, that goes above and beyond motorcycling. You know, it's the beautiful natural world around us, it's the food we eat, it's the different kind of shelters we build on the road. I could go on and on and, you know, the motorcycling at the end of the day is kind of the connecting thread.
1: You know, that's kind of what gets me going as far as adventure motorcycling goes is it's just a way to be out in the natural world be out in the backcountry just be out in the thick of the elements you know when it's hot you're hot when it's cold you're cold when it's raining you're wet and i feel like that you know that real connection with nature is really what drives me the most these days
2: coming to you from the heart of america this is the adventure motorcycle usa podcast On each episode, we'll talk with industry insiders, experienced adventure riders, ADV creators, and moto fabricators. With a passion for adventure and a penchant for two-wheel travel, we explore the stories of those behind the adventure motorcycle world. On the show today, we catch up with Sterling Noreen and Eva Rupert. Sterling and Eva are exceptionally accomplished individuals who together make one of Adventure Motorcycling's best dynamic duos. Sterling is a co-founding member of Backcountry Discovery Routes and has produced and filmed every BDR movie since 2010. His other notable adventure films include Expedition 65, which chronicles an ADV journey through South America, and he's got a decade's worth of Globe Rider films that span the world. When Sterling's not making Epic ADV movies, you can catch up with Eva and him on YouTube at Motorcycle Travel Channel. Not to be outdone, Eva Rupert is an event planner and currently the Motorcycle Community Ambassador for Overland Expo. She's an accomplished ADV rider, a rock climber, a primitive survival expert who has appeared on Discovery Channel's Naked and Afraid not once, but three times, and survived to the end each time. She's also one hell of a mixologist. We talk with Sterling and Eva about what makes them tick, why they love ADV riding, and how the BDR in Las Vegas turned a chance meeting into a life of pure adventure. Make sure you stay tuned to the end to hear Eva's pro tip on making an old fashioned, her best bet for your ADV campfire cocktail. Hey, if you're like us, you're gearing up for a summer of great adventure riding. And if you're riding the KTM 790, 890, 1290, or the Norden 901, Give the guys at Bulletproof Designs a call and get your bike set up and protected. Bulletproof's an industry-leading manufacturer of billet aluminum off-road protection guards and accessories, and their hard parts are purpose-built to protect your motorcycle. Lightweight, simple to install, and made in the U.S., all of Bulletproof Guards come with a lifetime warranty. Again, give them a call or check them out at BulletproofDesigns.com. Finally, if you're inclined to want to support this podcast, please give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribe wherever you listen, so you always get a notice when the latest episode drops. All right, enjoy this episode with Sterling Noreen and Eva Rupert. Welcome back to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. I'm your host, Matt McFadden, joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Terry T. Rell Terrell. Folks, we are excited to welcome what I would consider to be the power couple of the adventure motorcycling world, Eva Rupert and Sterling Noreen. Eva and Sterling, welcome to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast.
1: Hey, you guys. Thanks for having us. Hi, everybody.
2: Super excited to have you guys on. I tell you what, I'm a little nervous for the show. And I'll tell you why, I mean, I think given your background and experiences, we could probably do three podcasts on each of you, but there's, there's a little bit of method to the madness. And I'll I'll tell you uh, why I wanted to, to have you guys on together. Um, I would watch what I would consider to be an inordinate amount of adventure motorcycling content on YouTube on nights and weekends. And my wife is usually sitting next to me working as well. And she never glances up from her computer to see what I'm watching. I mean, every now and then I'll get a That's a nice shot or nice scenery or where is that? But when you guys put your content out there as a couple, whether it's kind of the one tank adventures or more recently, your trip to Baja, she is totally engaged. She shuts her computer down and now all of a sudden she is as interested in what's going on as as I am. And so I thought it would be really interesting to get, you know, your perspective. I want I want to talk to you individually about kind of your background and stories. But um, I know you guys kind of met and came together through through motorcycling. And so I kind of want to get your perspectives and introspectives on on you know traveling and documenting uh, your time together as a couple as well.
0: Yeah, the couples thing for me has is really be, is really interesting and become something fun and new and exciting for the content that I've that I've done because I've never really tried to incorporate anything like that into my videos in the past and um, and it's probably a big part because I've never been with anybody like Eva who's so incorporable <laughs> to that kind of content, <laughs> I don't know word or not but uh, it just works really well and you know it, it, it's, it we love traveling together we have a good time it's really fun and we're just very compatible and i think that just comes out in the videos and you know inspires couples to go out and do something similar and i don't see a lot of that out there in this adventure motorcycling space it's usually like a guy thing or you know a separate ladies just kind of do their own thing and the guys do their own but once I got started on that, that track, I just thought, you know, let's, let's get Eva on there with me, you know, as much as I can.
1: Well, I've been called a lot of things, but incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, the other thing I also love about um, the motorcycle travel channel is when people come up to me and they're like, Eva, your videos are so good. Wow. I love your videos. And I'm like, thanks. Cause I don't do anything.
2: anything. Right. <laughs>
1: ride around and hang out and wait for Sterling to set up the camera and then we ride back and forth a bunch of times while he gets the shot. And so it's really fun. And it's also really cool to know that just like by living the lives that we live, that we're actually inspiring people and getting people out there and engaged and like excited to go motorcycling.
2: Yeah, and even you know my my wife, um it, it's interesting, yeah, I've been doing this um riding adventure bikes for, you know, the past twelve years or so. And my wife has not shown really any interest in kind of getting a bike and and joining me. And then, you know, she started watching some stuff on Jocelyn snow and she was like, yeah, that's interesting. Cause she, my wife's five, four. And so, you know, I was like, yeah, you don't have to, you know, it's all about riding. It's not about the, how heavy the bike is. And I think one of your videos came up and she just kind of stopped in her tracks as she was crossing the room. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm fascinated by that woman. And then just, just kept going. And so like, as I've had, you know, the videos on and and researching this, uh, you know, so I I think even though she's not like super into motorcycle, just like, you know, the stuff that you guys are doing together is fun because she's adventurous and you guys are adventurous and, you know, there's there's a connection there.
1: It's really cool because our trips are as much about the experience outside of motorcycling as it is about the motorcycling. Like we are as engaged in the cultures when we're in Baja and the people that we meet and the locations we get to. It doesn't really matter that we get there. We just get that bonus of having an awesome adventure ride and getting out and camping and making fun food and like, you know, just figuring out, as, figuring it out as we go. And like, that's as important to us as and the your videos
3: itself. and content show yeah.
2: that very well yeah i mean certainly there's there's a zen-like aspect to your videos and you know the kind of riding solo and and you know not a lot of talk and just you know the shots and, and when you guys are traveling together you you see that as well and and you almost lose yourself and you're, all of a sudden you, you guys are making this amazing meal and i'm like am i on some watching anthony bourdain and like it's all of a sudden like this awesome meal is coming out of it and then you know, Eva, you're adding your, your, um, your cocktails to things. And it's just, it's, it's a really fun thing that that takes adventure motorcycling and and builds the experience around it. And I've said this on the podcast before, you can only watch so many hours of somebody's helmet cam going up a trail. And, And what you guys do is really kind of bring everything else that those trips encompass into a, you know, kind of short form video. And it's, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's really what I try to do is to bring those other aspects of, of an adventure motorcycle ride or vacation onto the screen, you know, that there's so much that goes into this this sport or this form of recreation that, that goes above and beyond motorcycling. You know, it's the beautiful natural world around us. It's the food we eat. It's the different kind of shelters we build on the road. I could go on and on. And, you know, the motorcycling at the end of the day is kind of the connecting thread but it's not really about that for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, Terry and I always say, you know, we work corporate jobs. And so these two-week trips, you go out and, you know, something always happens. And, and when you come back, my faith is always restored in oh. humanity because you meet so many interesting people along the way. And...
0: Something always happens. And that's something I've told myself since day one on these kind of adventure motorcycle rides is that I don't ever really have to struggle to plan a story or build a story because something will happen along the way and it's going to be interesting no matter what
2: that's right the adventure begins when something goes wrong
0: yeah well certainly let's
2: let's start with you maybe and and your background for those that that don't know um your history um interesting you you grew up as i understand on a blueberry farm in in western michigan
0: yeah yeah i grew up in in western michigan um Single mother raised, my brother and I, dad was up in Alaska working on the pipeline. And motorcycling for me started as a big surprise when I was eight years old. Out of the blue came a brand new Honda Z50, a little Honda Trail 50. Wasn't expecting it, but boy, that changed my life. And I just started riding that little mini bike around the farm and in the woods. And you know probably had it until I was about 12 or 13 years old. And it just planted the seed for motorcycling in my life. And then I didn't ride all through high school and through college, um, but I did get into video production in high school and decided that that was a path I wanted to pursue. And so I signed up at the local college to study film and video production and did four years at the university in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and got out, started working in the industry, and moved out to Seattle to really... I don't know. I was looking for a change. I didn't want to, you know, I felt limited in West Michigan for what I wanted to do career-wise and such. And I was into climbing and mountaineering and Seattle was a little closer to my dad up in Alaska. So I kind of split the difference between Michigan and Alaska and moved out to Seattle. And I didn't have a car for those first couple of years. I was commuting to work on the bus and out of nowhere I just got this idea to find uh, a motorcycle and I looked in the the classified ads in the paper found an old BMW slash 5 R50 for sale for a thousand bucks in my neighborhood and I went and picked it up and that really kinda got me back into motorcycling and motorcycle touring and I spent about the next four years all my free time just riding around on that old bike in the northwest and learning how to put miles under my belt on the pavement you know going for progressively longer and longer rides. And that's, that's kind of where motorcycling sort of began in my life.
2: Do you, do you think, you know, we had, um we had a guy, Nathan Jenkins on who grew up in a hippie commune in Arkansas and, you know, he was, you know, at eight years old, kind of, I think he said he was riding a motorcycle to school and it was like, you know, 10 miles away. And, and this guy's just got a great spirit about him. Do you think that your upbringing and your your mom's kind of free-range parenting at that point instilled a wonderlust in you that that maybe continues to this day?
0: I, I definitely think there that was part of it. Like I, I didn't think anything particularly about motorcycling as a kid or that I would do it all my life or whatever. It was fun and I enjoyed it. But when I got back into it, and then when I started getting into it more as a career, I kind of realized how much it informed my early life and made what I do today possible by kind of giving me a really early foundation for just that kind of adventure and exploration on, on two wheels.
2: Yeah. And, and you went to college for film and cinematography, right?
0: Yeah, I did. I studied. I got a bachelor's degree, in film and video communications. I worked at the PBS public television station for a couple of years as a student employee, um, that's where I did my first documentary film, and it was kind of like a senior thesis. I just had to come up with a project, and I said, you know, I want to make a movie about the lighthouses of the Great Lakes. I was fascinated by lighthouses, so they gave me the the key to the television station van and the camera and said, go do it, and so I, you know, I was 20 years old, drove around Lake Michigan with a television van and a camera and interviewed lighthouse keepers, and Made a half-hour documentary, and it was on all seven Michigan PBS stations. You know, by the time I graduated college,
2: quite an accomplishment. And Eva, you also have a, a degree in film and photography, right?
1: Yeah, that's why Sterling's videos <laughs> look so good. Um, yeah, I have a I have a degree in film and photography, but I didn't really do that much with it. You know, I spent most of my film time in the darkroom. Just back when there used to be dark rooms for making your photos and so you know i i my main background is in the service industry and hospitality with with a hefty side dose of wilderness survival and primitive skills
3: you yeah. know
1: i i i got out of college and i just hightailed it for the west coast and basically never looked back you know like I grew up in the Northeast. I was born in Connecticut, spent my younger years in Connecticut, New York and Massachusetts. And then as soon as I, you know, had a set of wheels underneath me, I hightailed it for California. And, you know, the West always just kind of captivated me and like getting closer and closer and more engaged with the natural world is the thing that really kind of fueled my early passions. You know, when Sterling was making documentaries, I was doing a ton of rock climbing and practicing primitive skills in wilderness survival. And so I'd say, you know, that's kind of what, gets me going as far as adventure motorcycling goes is it's just a way to be out in the natural world, be out in the backcountry, just be out in the thick of the elements. You know, when it's hot, you're hot. When it's cold, you're cold. When it's raining, you're wet. And I feel like that, you know, that real connection with nature is really what drives me the most these days.
2: Yeah, Let's back up a second on your your background there, because I know you go out west and, and you get into rock climbing and then head up to Estes Park.
1: Yeah. So I've worked in a variety of different schools. You know, um, I started out doing a lot of homeschool stuff. I did end up going back to the East Coast after first sinking my teeth into the West. I went back East and I worked for a wilderness school based out of Connecticut, about 45, 50 minutes north of New York City. And it was called Great Hollow Wilderness School. And that's where this whole idea of primitive skills kind of first dropped in my lap and there was a lot of homeschooling cooperatives and homeschooling networks out there and so I worked with those kids doing a bunch of curriculum design and getting the kids out into the you know out into the forest in Connecticut and um, just sort of found this passion for education that was kind of the bulk of my 20s. It's where I also found my footing as a climber and outdoors woman just in general. I formalized that by going to the Eagle Rock School in Estes Park, Colorado where they had a took okay, yeah. Yeah. Estes Park was phenomenal. You know, the school was great. I learned a ton, but what I was really in love with was being in the mountains, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, whatever I do, it's really just, you know, pushes me to be outside and connect with people. Those are like the two, the two big things in my world.
2: And I don't don't want to spend a ton of time on it because I know you've talked about it, but it is an interesting part of your backstory, which was, you know, the, the primitive skills and, and teaching and the fellowship that you did kind of led to uh, a casting call or from a cast a call from a casting agent to go on to Naked and Afraid.
1: Yeah, Naked and Afraid was it was kind of a it was kind of an interesting time in my life because I got involved with that show before it was ever actually on television. So, um I get this cold call out of nowhere. I was living in Arizona at the time, in northern Arizona in Prescott, and I get this phone call saying like, "Hey, we're casting for a new survival show. Do you want to be a part of it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds really cool. Like everybody wants that." cold call out of nowhere saying, come on this television show. And then they're like, and there's a twist, you're going to be naked. And I'm like, okay, this is just weird. But it ended up being a really cool process. You know, over the course of, you know, over the course of the last decade, I've done three different naked and afraid episodes, 21 days, 40 days, and then two weeks and, you know, survived to the end every time. And it's just a great opportunity to put your skills to the test in this really raw, um, wilderness experience.
2: Well, I think it shows a true adventurous spirit because not not just going on the, the show and, and making the twenty one days or the, the forty days or whatever it was, but having you know, the show's a big success now and everybody knows what it is and what it's about and it's it's actually kind of family friendly despite the name. But then, I mean, you know, you're going on a show called Naked and Afraid and they're like, Hey, come out in the you know, with somebody else you don't know and go naked. I mean that you have to that's a pretty big leap. That I think most people would have been like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's weird for about five minutes. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. with no clothes on, some guy I've never met, there's a bunch of cameras around me. So there's definitely a weirdness to it, um, especially that first episode because nobody had ever seen it before, right? It right. On television. It was like a brand new pilot series and they released a couple of episodes to rave reviews. And so like, basically, I got a call like, okay, you need to leave on Tuesday for Africa, you're going to Madagascar. And I'm like, what like this is, it's just wild, you know, it's a it's a a wild experience. But you know, the naked thing wears off, you know, people are always like, how come you don't just make clothes right away? And you're like, because you have bigger things to worry about than right? You you need water, you need some food, you need some shelter, you need some fire, like those are your priorities, not like making a bikini out of palm leaves.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's interesting. Um, And Sterling, you know, back to, you know, you you do the you do the lighthouse documentary, you know, that that kind of sets you off on on your own course. Right. And and when was it that you you got into really motorcycle adventure traveling? Was that with Globe Riders and 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 Helge?
0: Yeah, it was. And, you know, what I I should say, when I first started doing film and video production, you know, I, I did it because I found it interesting and i thought it would be a good career as a as a young person and it was you know the idea was just basically to get a good job in the industry i didn't really have my sights on horizons any bigger than that it's like you know maybe i'll just continue to find better companies to work for and i did when i got out to seattle i ended up getting a job at microsoft and worked as a contractor for 4 years doing film and video productions like right at the birth of the internet doing i did a a live streaming from Costa Rica for one of my projects or assignments for Microsoft. And I thought that was like just about the coolest thing in the world. And then I got laid off and it was right kind of at the beginning of sort of right before the dot com. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was kind of painful and surprising at first, but then it really made me realize that no matter how good a job you get working for a big corporation, you're expendable. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you're only good as long as you're needed. And if they don't need you, you'll just be gone in a day. And that's kind of what happened to me. And so before I jumped back in and tried to find the next job, I, I it took some time to really think about well, what do I really want to be doing with my career? And do I want to go back to work for a company or is there something else I could do? And, And I kind of decided, you know, that I would give freelance work a try, that it would be a little more independent, and maybe I'd have some more time to be able to go out and pursue other things on my own. And so that's the path that I went down. And one of the things that I decided to do on my own when I wasn't working freelance jobs was that I I wanted to to do another documentary. I wanted to, you know, that kind of a challenge, that creative challenge. And, And I didn't know what it was that I wanted it to be about. So I took a class at the community media center in Seattle on documentary filmmaking, knowing that I would have an assignment and a deadline and some structure, and that it would be more likely to get done. And our first assignment was to come up with a subject. Well, that week, as I was thinking about what to make my movie about, I happened to see a slideshow at the local motorcycle dealership called 10 Years on Two Wheels, about this guy that rode around the world on a BMW for 10 years and published a book about it. And I saw the show, it set the hook, it inspired me, his adventure, the motorcycling, the travel, everything about it just signaled to me that that was something that not only I wanted to do, but that could also be a really fascinating subject to make a movie about. And so i approached him after the show and just said hey look i'm doing this little documentary film and this class workshop would you would you be a part of it could i maybe tell your story in a video format and that was helge peterson the founder of globe riders and he graciously said yeah let's let's do a little project together so we we picked a time in march and we rode out to Nia Bay, out in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and we filmed for two or three days, camping and riding. And I ended up producing like a little eight-minute documentary about Helge's story and motorcycling. And it, you know, it was it was good enough that it met the criteria for the class. But it was also good enough that when Helge, two years later, started Globe Riders, his motorcycle tour company that led tours around the world, he called me up and said, "Hey, I'm doing this ride across." Russia, do you want to come and document it?
2: Wow. And that that then set off a whole, I mean, you were with him for for quite a while, right? I mean,
0: worked together for just about 10 years from 2000 until 2010. During that time, I think we did six feature length programs or multi-episode series for television. We did uh, the Iceland adventure and then the world tour across China and Russia. We did the silk road through central asia indochina vietnam cambodia laos and then africa so a whole bunch of different globe riders programs and all of those adventures ranged from 30 to 65 days in duration and they were fully guided by how fully supported we had support trucks not that we were camping you'd stay in the best available hotels but there would be a support truck a van to carry luggage or in case someone broke so I don't want to portray it as though we were adventurers riding around the world solo. It was, you know, a luxury adventure tour. Sure. But nonetheless, you know, amazing experience, big opportunity for me, life-changing. And to do it with someone like Helge, where just day after day after day, I'm riding with the master and learning all the tips and tricks of, of motorcycling and photography. It just... know it couldn't have been better for someone like me and it it never became a full-time job i still had to work in the industry for a while for other companies and work my day job but i managed to to participate in every assignment that came my way through globe riders and and you know we did it quite quite a lot over 10 years
2: And, and when you met him that was a like late 90s
0: 1998.
2: okay and then that that went through all the way to 2008 right so you yeah. kind of transitioned off of that into the, the BDR stuff?
0: Exactly. So yeah, from nineteen ninety-eight until 2010 was was a lot of Hellgate projects. And I started working in the industry as well for other companies and making videos for their products or their trade shows, you know, sure. tour, tour
2: attack, yeah.
0: Other folks like that. So I was getting a name in the industry at that point for myself and in motorcycling. And In 2007, I was able to quit my last full-time job as an editor-producer and just, you know, basically started my own company that just focused on motorcycle travel content exclusively. And then- And that's Noreen
2: Noreen Films, right?
0: Noreen Films, yeah. And then 2010 was kind of a a big year for two reasons. Um, After doing all those trips with Helge around the world and that you know, supported environment, I sort of had a desire to set a personal challenge for myself to do something solo. You know, I felt that they're as great as those trips are and as privileged as I was to go on them, I also felt like I needed to do a project that was just me on a motorcycle in the back country with no help, no support, and that, that I could do something that would be next level authentic challenge. And so I did my first riding solo project in 2009, riding down to Mexico for 50 days by myself. And that, you know, kind of cracked open. That was the beginning seed of even what I'm doing today when it comes to like the riding solo kind of projects. And then in 2010, the other big thing that happened was backcountry discovery routes came into existence. I was one of the founders and we created the first BDR in Washington state made the first movie and we've done one every year since then
2: amazing and even you know you you're bouncing around the west and rock climbing and in an old toyota which i love i'm a toyota guy by the way so um and i i think i you said something like it was an old rusted out toyota like sr5 right and i just kept thinking like that r i think it was the r22 engine that 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 truck had and it was like bulletproof the the body would literally rust out around, uh, the engine, it's, but what? go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. I'm just, I'm just feeling nostalgic for all the fantastic Toyota pickup trucks that have graced my life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know I, I actually had mine in just getting some routine maintenance done. I said, you know, normally on any other car, I probably wouldn't do this, but I'm going to run the wheels off this Toyota truck. So, you know, I, I keep it in pretty good shape, but when did, when did you really start getting into, into riding motorcycles?
1: You know, I started riding in my early 20s and I will say it's really hard to talk about motorcycles right behind Sterling because no matter how much you've ridden, you probably have not ridden as much as Sterling.
2: (laughs) Well, listen, I'm always impressed because, look, I'm not, I mean, you know, we're not great accomplished riders. We're just like two guys that love the sport and love everything about it and the people that are in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I started riding in my early 20s. I kind of just bought this Really, it's that you know, it's the one that got away. I bought this really gorgeous nineteen or nineteen seventy-nine CB seven fifty on an absolute whim. I think it was eight hundred dollars. I think I had eight hundred dollars in my pocket. I was probably twenty-two years old. And I had one of my friends, and I had ridden a buddy's dirt bike like once or twice in high school, so I figured I knew everything I needed to know about riding (laughs) motorcycles. I had a friend drop me off at the place where they were selling it. And I'm sure I almost killed myself a hundred times, like trying to get home on that thing. (laughs) But, um, you know, tooled around on that thing for a few years and then sold it off. And then there was a pretty long break before I got another motorcycle. You know, I would I would ride friends bikes and I would, you know, bop around here and there. But it was never really something because I was such a solo artist, like kind of just doing the dirtbag climber truck living outdoor educator gig just doesn't yeah. lend itself to having excess possessions um and then once i moved to flagstaff which was right around 10 years ago now flagstaff arizona i picked up another old honda cx and that was so it was sort of a pivotal moment because i was rooted i was committed to being in flagstaff i loved the town and i just knew like i had a house i had a place to live i was paying rent like it was a good time to get another motorcycle and i got Um, I got same deal 1979 Honda CX 500 and rode that thing all over the place and I just had no idea that it wasn't an adventure motorcycle like the idea of like KLRs and GSs was just not even something that I knew anything about but I assumed like I was going around and I was camping all the time and I was doing all kinds of fun stuff so I assumed I was riding an adventure motorcycle and there's this event called Overland Expo that I think you guys have probably heard of Um, and Overland Expo happens in Flagstaff in May, and so I was like, oh, cool, adventure bikes. I have an adventure bike, so I rode down to Overland Expo. It was about 40 minutes outside of town, and, like, I get there, and there's, like, all these guys, like, riding around, standing up on their pegs on these, like, spaceship-looking bikes. It was just, like, such an eye-opening experience for me, and literally, like, I was just like broadsided I was like oh wait those are adventure motorcycles you mean this is an adventure motorcycle and it was really just such an interesting time in my life because it was so eye-opening and like so inspiring to see all these people and like you know meet the the Ted Simons and Sam Manicom's and Lisa and Simons of the world like who've ridden all over the place you know I felt like I kind of had to bring my own little dirtbag spirit to it and um shortly after going to the first Overland Expo ever, I met one of my best buddies, Josh Reamer, and we rode our Trail 90s across the state of Arizona. So I'm super committed to adventure riding and obviously ride things like GSs and Tenerife 700s now. But um, back then it was really just about the spirit of adventure, just as raw and real as you can possibly get.
2: Yeah, I have a a friend and he's like, every bike's an adventure bike, you know? it's, it's, it's where you want to go with that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I know your are got your, your lives intersect here, um, through kind of a BDR, uh, experience, but let's just take a half step back, Sterling, and, and talk maybe about the, the history or the origin of the BDR. I know you're a co-founding member of Backcountry Discovery Routes, but for those that, um, we actually have quite a few uh, folks overseas that that listen to this that may not be familiar with backcountry discovery routes and for those that aren't um tell us a little bit about what it what it is
0: so backcountry discovery routes is a nonprofit organization that we founded in 2010 and it kind of has a mission to create and preserve backcountry riding opportunities in the u.s and what i mean by that is that we go out and create routes that go across entire states in the back country on dirt roads that are legal, that you can ride on. But we spend the time to figure out the route. We look at the maps, we figure out the best way to travel across the state in the back country, and then we go out and do it. And we do an expedition, we film it. When we're done, we put it on a website, we give away a GPS track for free, we have a paper map and we make the movie, and we just basically release the whole thing to the public so now, you don't have to spend the time planning your adventure and figuring out what roads to ride on. You've got it, all the tools you need to go out and have that adventure. So that's what it is. It's been in existence for ten years, maybe eleven. Now we just finished our eleventh backcountry discovery route in Wyoming, the initial,
2: which we are going to ride this summer.
0: That's fantastic. We yeah. should. Yeah,
2: yeah, we are. We're, we decided we were looking at going up maybe into Canada, British Columbia, and uh terry and i uh poured some bourbon z i don't know a couple weeks ago and watched the the bdr film and we we're like you know what let's just go do Wyoming. it's this is it looks awesome it's fun and we're gonna tack a few days on on the front end and a few days on the back end and, and make it kind of a full 12 days
0: and that's what's so cool about the bdr is that a new route comes out every year so it's become like a tradition in this community to look forward to the new BDR, the movies released in the wintertime so that you can get all stoked up and start thinking about doing it. And then you can go out and do it in the appropriate season, usually the summer. But it's, you know, it's really become a, a big organization in the adventure riding community. And for the new riders, they're really lucky because now when they hear about the BDR, there's 11 routes already. There's more than they can do in one year to begin with. So it's just, it's really big. It's a really cool thing. And I've just been super fortunate to be part of that group since day one and still have the ability to go out with them every year and do the movies. It's, it's just, it's really fun. And what, a, it's a great organization.
2: Yeah. O- over the past decade, we've done sections of a bunch of the BDR routes, uh, throughout the West. And, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a great, it's been a great thing for the adventure motorcycle community, um, how how What was the genesis? I mean, how did it come about?
0: So the, the, the very first backcountry discovery route was created in Oregon. And we had nothing to do with it. It was some other people in Oregon created their own route across the, the state and called it a backcountry discovery route. And that was around maybe 2000. And the, the founder of Touratech, Tom Myers, rode that route in 2000, had a good time. And then several years later in 2008... We're all sitting around me, Helge Peterson, Globe Riders, Touratech, thinking about projects we could do together. And someone said, let's go ride this Oregon BDR. So we, we rode the Oregon BDR in 2008. We made a little YouTube video, which is still on YouTube to this day. Um, and, and that was cool. That was a great little project. Well, two years later, a friend of mine introduced me to these other two guys from Seattle that had their own idea of creating a Washington backcountry discovery route. They were kind of like from the tech industry, one of them had published a guidebook on hiking trails. Another one was had a company that did like remote medical services. So they were young, they were adventurous entrepreneurs, and they kind of wanted Washington state to have their own backcountry discovery route. So I was introduced to the, those two guys and I said, you know, that's a really cool idea. Why don't we film it and I'll see if I can get Support from Touratech because you know I explained we did the Oregon BDR and filmed it. It was yeah. great, and they said, "Well, yeah, sure, let's you know let's pitch it to Touratech." And they had no expectations, so we went into Touratech, had lunch with them. They told them their plan to make the Washington route, and Touratech said, "We're in. We want to do it." So, long story short, that summer we went out, we filmed this new Washington backcountry discovery route. We made a movie. We released it in the wintertime. Everybody loved it. And then they said, what's next? What are you doing next? <laughs> right. And that's really where it all started. So then the next year, we just scrambled and figured out, okay, we got to, let's do let's do Utah, you know, next year. And, and it just, the ball just started rolling from there.
2: Yeah. So what's the next one, can you say? Is yeah, it?
0: Absolutely. It's public knowledge. And what's really interesting about the next one is that we're doing our own official version of Oregon. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've yeah. got the we got going the,
2: back to back to Oregon to do the official BDR.
0: Back to Oregon to do the official one. Yeah, and I you know I leave here in a couple of weeks to head up there.
2: Eva, you are now the motorcycle community ambassador for Overland Expo.
1: You guys are so good at doing <laughs> your homework. Like everything, is so spot on. Yes, that is correct. That-
2: and you just got back from the Overland Expo in Flagstaff. Yeah. Correct. Okay.
1: We just wrapped possibly our biggest Overland Expo ever just last weekend, which was insane. So yeah. it was like 27,000 people. No, not all of them were adventure motorcyclists, but it was right. huge and tons of fun. And we have three more Overland Expos this year. So I'm also headed to Oregon this year, which I'm super excited about. I'll leave the week after Sterling to ride my new Tenere 700 up to Oregon for um, Overland Expo in Bend.
2: Wow. So you're going to ride from Bisbee to Bend.
1: Bizbee to bend, yep, B2B.
2: <laughs> That's great. How did you how did you get that role? I mean, how did that come about?
1: You know, like I said, I've done a lot of service industry, bar, restaurant management stuff. And when Overland Expo in Flagstaff moved to its new location, they needed somebody to kind of coordinate the food and beverage side of things. So I signed on under the previous ownership, Rosanna Jonathan Hansen are the, the great Overlanders who started Overland Expo. Signed on with them to just make sure that people had cold beers to drink and food trucks to eat at and did that for a few years. Once Overland Expo was purchased by Lodestone Events, the company that now owns the event, they were kind of like, you know, Eva, the food and beverage stuff is nice, but you're so into this motorcycle thing. Let's shift you over so that you're doing all this cool moto stuff. And I was like, yes, please, no problem. So it's a pretty fantastic job. Like, it's super fun. I just get to hang out with all of my adventure riding buddies and just get get the community all jazzed to get together and do awesome stuff.
2: That's exciting. That's a that's a great story. I mean, I have a friend and he's like, Look, if you get into what you want, then good things happen and you get into more of what you want, you know, and it, it's funny that if you if you kind of just like certainly like you said, just take that chance to go freelance. And, and sometimes that chance is, is taken for you because you get downsized or something like that. But if you can just step out and, and take that chance and have a little faith in the world, Um, you know, usually good things happen.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So let's go back to, uh, I know every great love story starts in Las Vegas and yours is no exception. So Eva, why don't you take us through how you guys met?
1: Well, it is a, it was, it's a really funny story. So by the time we met, I also had a KLR, which was fantastic. And I had gotten asked to be a presenter at this little motorcycle convention in Las Vegas and then present at the BDR fundraiser, which was out in Death Valley that year. So I had two back-to-back speaking engagements one weekend after the next. And so I hopped on my KLR, packed up my stuff, and headed for Las Vegas. And Sterling had the same two events on his calendar as well. So he was, I guess you were showing BDRs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Sterling was showing and presenting about whatever the current backcountry discovery route that year was, so he was showing his films. I was doing some speaking engagements and we were introduced by a mutual friend, Kim Kraus. Shout out to Kim, best matchmaking in the history of adventure motorcycling. Um, We were introduced by a mutual friend and then basically spent the next week caravanning around Nevada and California together. And it was really fun. It wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was like a love at first sight kind of thing, but I don't know. I mean, how would you describe it? Well,
0: it it was definitely a compatibility at first sight. Like we, the night that we met was the the BDR movie screening, and the th- three or four of us went out on the town after that movie. We ended up spending the entire night out drinking and getting crazy, like you see in the movies. It was about a, Vegas. It was
1: raucous. <laughs> no,
0: and you know we, it was it was one of those nights. It was a, it was great, but super hungover in the morning, and we you know we when dawn came up and we were still awake, we went out for coffee and donuts. And, you know, what do you say after a great night like that with someone? And, and then I learned that Eva had to go to Death Valley for the BDR fundraiser, which is where I was headed. And so that was great. That got got to keep our little connection alive. And yeah. I was in my van with my motorcycle on the back. She was on her KLR wearing her car hearts. <laughs> and so we just rode, we spent the next two days together riding over to Death Valley to go to the BDR fundraiser. We spent the night camping at a hot spring on the way there. Then we spent four nights at the Backcountry Discovery Route fundraiser. And before you knew it, we had been, you know, within eyesight of each other for an entire week since the second that we met. It's true, And it was like like the most fun I had ever had with anyone in my life. And I'm like, "Well, well, this is pretty awesome. Let's keep this going.
1: Yeah, it was really, it was super fun. And it was like one of those things, you know, you have those friends that they're fine when you're out in the woods, but you can't take them out in public, you know, or you have those friends who are like city friends and God forbid they should like get in a sleeping bag or get dirty or anything like that. And like to find a partner who's as comfortable out in the city, glammed up, having a fabulous evening as they are out in like the wilds of the back country, sleeping on the dirt and riding motorcycles. I mean, it's just a really special connection, you know? And we share that and so many other things. Like we're just so weirdly compatible. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's awesome.
2: And Sterling, where were you living at the
0: time? I was in Seattle, Eva was
2: okay. in my staff. Okay.
1: Well, was it? Like after we met, like we never went more than two weeks without seeing yeah. each other. And it was really cool because either I'd fly up to Seattle or Sterling would fly down to Arizona, or we met up in L.A. He was riding um, at one point, like when we were doing the long distance thing, Sterling was doing his Expedition 65 trip with Rawhide. And they had like a little sort of lag time where like all the wives and girlfriends of all the guys on on the trip could fly in. And so I in Peru, yeah, yeah, we were in Peru. And so I flew down and I rented a motorcycle and rode around Peru with them for a week with the whole E65 crew and then stuck around while we went down into Bolivia. And like, I mean, it was all, it was always a fun adventure. Like there was always something, we were always cooking on something.
0: And then about a year into that, I, you know, as good as it was and it was working okay, it's still kind of hard to to be living in different states with someone that you want to be with. And so I kind of felt like I was more ready to move and leave where I was at in Seattle and come down to Arizona than than vice versa. In fact, I was quite excited and happy about the idea of getting out of the city and going down to the desert and switching things up. And it, you know, by that point in my career, I was pretty much doing my own thing and working by myself. So it wasn't hard to rent my house out and move down to Flagstaff to be with Eva. And that's kind of how I transitioned or began the transition and started, you know, my life down here in Arizona.
2: Now, whose idea was it to go buy a motel in Bisbee?
1: (laughs) Well, Bisbee was Sterling's idea, but the motel, I think, was a joint decision, 100 percent. Sterling had come through Bisbee back when they were filming the Arizona BDR, and then he had another filming trip Uh, Continental Divide ride, I guess. Was that a rawhide thing? Yeah. Yeah. And so he had been through Bisbee, you know, a decade ago or something like that. And when he was living in Flagstaff, he was like, hey, let's go check out this town, Bisbee. I had never been there. You know, Bisbee to Flagstaff is five or six hours, depending on, or eight hours, like I spent coming down the other day, if you take the fun way. So um, he was like, let's go check out this little town. And it's one of those places that, like, if you're into, like, really gorgeous, quirky mining towns in the middle of nowhere with fabulous communities and incredible nature all around it, it's the kind of place that will steal your heart. If you're into big cities where you can order Chinese takeout at three in the morning, this is not the place for you. But
2: Yeah, so it, interesting, yeah, interesting. I don't want me to cut you off, but... Yeah. I, 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 I did a little research uh, the other day on on Bisbee and and found out that it produced like twenty five percent of the world's copper at, at one point and was the largest city between St. Louis and San Francisco at its its height. Mm-hmm. And and today i don't want I don't want to say it's it's a hippie town, but it's been it's been labeled the best hippie town in America. But it's it's an artistic, thriving, creative community that's kind of in a small mining town ten miles from the Mexican border, right?
1: You got it. Yeah. And it is a hippie town, but it's also an entrepreneur town. You know, the people who live here are either retired or self-employed for the most part. And so there's definitely like a hippie artsy vibe, but there's also a really sort of blue collar, hardworking vibe, which is kind of what it takes to live out in sure. the middle of nowhere like this.
0: A lot of people work three or four different <clears throat> jobs or they do their art or they work in a bar or restaurant or have a business or they or they're just retired.
2: Well, tell us about the the, the Motel.
0: Well, that was something that neither one of us had any idea that was going to be in our future. We, you know, after we came down to Bisbee and Eva had a chance to see it, she she kind of fell in love with it as I did. And my initial thought was that maybe I would get a house in Bisbee and then, you know, we'd have the house in Flagstaff and we could come down to Bisbee when we wanted to get away. And I, maybe I'd have my own place as well down here. And in the process of looking for a house down here, we just happened to, to to be here on our motorcycles touring with a real estate agent and we're getting ready to leave and we're packing up our bikes and Eva just randomly looks on the commercial real estate website instead of residential and she's like, oh, there's this little cute vintage motel that just went on the market today. Let's take a look at it. And so we decided to stop there on the way out of town just just out of curiosity mostly. And as we were on the property, the innkeeper came out and introduced herself and we're talking with her. And she kind of showed us the motel. And then she said, Do you know that this motel was just listed for sale today on the internet? What do you guys do for a living? And I said, Well, I'm a filmmaker. And Eva said, I'm an event planner. And her jaw dropped and she said, Oh my God. She said, We were just, I was just talking with the owners of the motel this morning. We were having breakfast together. And the wife said, wouldn't it be cool if a young creative couple were the ones to purchase this motel like an artist and an event planner? And we showed up two, like two hours later wow. and the owners were still in town. In fact, they were in the other room in the motel. And so the innkeeper goes in and gets them and brings them out on the patio. Mm. And we sat down and talked for like the next two hours. And they decided right then and there that we were the ones that were meant to take over the motel. And we decided that This was like the coolest thing we could ever imagine, no matter, like we didn't have the money to buy it or how are we going to do it. But when something like that happens like that, you figure where there's a will, there's a way and you'll make it happen.
1: Yeah, it was just so serendipitous. Like the whole thing was just, you know, one of those things where it's like too coincidental to just explain. It was awesome. Yeah. And so ever since then, you know, it took maybe a year to kind of figure out how to make it happen and how to get down here. And. You know, ever since then, it's we're coming up on our four-year anniversary this July. So it'll be four years since we've had the motel, and it's been so much fun, so much work, and we're so excited for the future.
2: And You guys have a big backyard there with a the stage and and room for Overland. That's what stuff, one. That's
0: what is. Yeah, we have an acre of flat land. Which Bisbee is located in a canyon. There's steep walls on either side. All you, you, you both directions are up. Every direction is <laughs> yeah. up. In Bisbee. You know, the, the town is filled with all these old hysteric, hysterical, <laughs> it's a hysterical, district. the whole town is a hysterical district. That's what I call it. Right. Old historic staircases everywhere. And so to have a flat acre of land right in town is pretty incredible. And so that's what we have. We, we call it like our overland oasis. So we can camp about maybe 15 overland vehicles, vans and trucks, motorcycles, tents in the backyard. We've got a stage, a sauna, a community garden, lots of places to hang out. And then it's all walking distance to the, the bars and the shops and the restaurants and the only gas station in town with the 24-hour convenience stores right across our backyard. So it couldn't be more awesome. of a better location.
2: Now, let me transition to you guys kind of traveling together because I'm interested in this. I mean, Sterling, you talked about um, riding solo and, and doing solo trips and I want to get into a little bit of your cinematography and, and your work with the drone and how um, that maybe has changed your filmmaking over over time and especially riding solo. But when you're out on your own, um, you know, there, time, time is your only enemy, right? I mean, you can backtrack and, and get the right shot three or four times and, and you can set up shots and go back and, you know, you only have yourself and, and the sun to worry about when you're traveling with a companion um, I, I would think that would become harder. And, and Eva, I've watched some stuff with you about, you know, being very intentional and present when you're riding and it's all about the riding. And we've talked to, you know, we've had Cole Kirkpatrick on uh, who who I think worked with you on the California BDR and, and Simon Cudby and, and others um, that have said, look, my business has taken over and, and riding isn't so fun anymore. And so how, how do you balance maybe writing as a couple and, and still getting the great content. And is it still content first when you guys are out?
0: Well, I I would say for me that the, the real passion is the filmmaking. You know, that's what my motivation is. That's where the creativity is for me. The writing is kind of secondary. Of course I enjoy writing and I always will, but I've done so much of it that, you know, I'm not, as enthused about a particular ride as I was in the beginning, but, but i am never less enthused about the idea of creating great shots and editing a great story. Like that's just really my motivation. And what I've learned over the years is that it's, you know, it, it's always very, a different experience when you're doing that as part of a big team. When I'm trying to film a ride, with a bunch of other people, it's quite often, it's honestly, it's just a, a big challenge. And it's very difficult because there's usually a schedule and an itinerary and everybody's in a rush. And And so I you know, have to make shortcuts on doing the kind of filming that I know I'm capable of or like to do. And so that's why I've progressively done more and more solo projects, because I just feel like when I'm out on my own, I, can, I have the time and the space to really like practice my craft and my art the way that I want it to with no distractions and no excuses other than, than my own. And so I really love that the most now riding with Eva. Yeah. That changes it, but it's not like it doesn't change it in the way that a big group changes it. we get along pretty well. Um, but it, you know, it is different and that's okay too. Like on the Baja trip, I didn't film with a drone partly because you're not supposed you to
2: can't, be in yeah.
0: Mexico. Um, but also just because I, I partly just wanted to like enjoy the trip as a motorcyclist and not be so concerned about filming it in a certain way. And I, I still wanted to make videos and do the best I could. And so I just turned it into a positive and said, look, I'm just going to try to film most of the day shots with a GoPro, just do the best job I can. And then if we find a cool place to camp, I'll break out the other camera when it's more relaxed and chill and do some more beautiful campsite filming. And, you know, I think it worked out. So I just kind of have to modify things based on the the ride and whether I'm alone or with someone or with a group. And every sort of style of filmmaking is different. The tools I use is different. The method that I'll use during that filming is going to be different as well.
2: And Eva, do you do you enjoy um, the filming process when you guys are traveling together or, or being the subject sometimes of the filming process?
1: Totally. I'm a total cheese ball when it comes to that stuff. And I just, I just don't have any problems being on camera. And I always really enjoy it. And I, I find that I have to reassure Sterling sometimes when we're together that like you know, I'm not a group of 12 people with a heavy-duty filming schedule. I'm like, I'm cool. Like, I can camp in a ditch by the side of the road, and I'm as happy as can be as long as I have a cold beer in my hydro flask. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I I hope that I'm helping to sort of ease some of, some of Sterling's stress about hanging out with somebody, riding, and trying to create content, you know? But I also notice, like, every now and then, like, you don't bring a camera, and, like, I feel like you get a little twitchy. Like, you feel like you should be having a camera. Like, anytime Oops. you got your... Helmet on. You gotta have a camera too, otherwise it's so this, it's, it's so bad. true.
0: Because if I did, it, it, it's kind of I don't know how to say it exactly, but if I wasn't filming, I don't know what I'd do at the end of the day. Like you get to a campsite, I'd just be you just kick I'd, back and relax. You especially know. riding solo. Like if I didn't, at the end of the day, if I wasn't filming my campsite and cooking those good meals, like. I'd be bored as crap unless I had something else to do, which I you know, I'd probably bring a musical instrument or read a book or learn a new language or write in a journal or take up running. You know, I, I feel like you have to have a secondary skill if you're yeah. gonna go on a long motorcycle trip by yourself. Otherwise it'll just be you'll just ride, ride, ride all the time.
2: Yeah.
1: It takes such a different level of ambition to do what Sterling does, you know, cause I go on plenty of solo rides, maybe not quite as epic. Nothing I do is as epic as Sterling except for my events are way more epic than his, <laughs> um, but like to do what Sterling does, like the level of ambition and how hard he works on this stuff, I mean, you should see him. I wish that there was like, you know, a little mini drone following him around all the time because this guy is up before everybody. His bike is totally packed. He's running his camera, drinking coffee, like before people have even come out of their sleeping bags. And so for me, it's always like a great delight. If I'm packed and ready to go with like the key in the ignition before Sterling is, like that is, that's going to be a ringer of a day <laughs> because he's amazing. He works so hard and like just busts his butt nonstop like getting a shot comes first and foremost, but I'll tell you like when I'm riding by myself, like I love it just as much as you do, but for different reasons, you know, it's like, it's that helmet time. It's like that meditation. It's like, you're just so in the zone when you're riding. It's like, it's a level of meditation and peace that I don't find anywhere else in any other aspect of my life. You know, and at the end of the day, like I am that person around the campsite, like I'm writing in my journal, I'm making something yummy to drink. I'm having a nice bourbon cocktail like, I don't feel like I necessarily need to have that extra thing. But that said, I'm a I'm a writer. So writing in my journal is, well, is I my. Think, thing.
2: I think two observations. One is you guys are very authentic, and genuine. And so, um, you know, I got on this podcast, and I had watched so much of your videos, I kind of felt like I knew you guys, right. And, and in, in even talking to you now is, you know, the same as, as you guys are on the videos. And I think that's important in a in a world that is very inauthentic today and Instagram and you know all the social feeds and everything and everybody's ca- trying to portray themselves as you know s- somebody they may not be and 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 so you guys film when you drop a bike and you know you film laughing about not being and we've all been there right I mean it, th- those are those are human Things that happen when you're out there, and so I—that's that, an observation that I picked up that you guys are very genuine and authentic, and and that I think is appreciated as a as a viewer and a fan. Um, the other thing that I observed is I hope that Aeropress sponsors you guys because <laughs> we are we are Starbucks Starbucks via guys in the instant coffee, and I'm like now I'm like I think I might have to go buy one because it looks so good when you guys are doing your coffee in the morning.
1: I travel with both via. Okay always always vias because sometimes you know sometimes you just don't have the time or the bandwidth or whatever but yeah. the the AeroPress we, do you guys know anyone at AeroPress AeroPress if you're listening <laughs> um,
2: That's right call, call Eva yeah yeah you guys uh the the morning coffee I'm like hey, boy, Eva I got a good. question
3: for you you uh, you were mentioning solo rides uh a little while ago. And, and I'm curious as to with your background, with your survival skills background, like, have you been in a situation on a ride where, y- you know, you felt like you needed um, to utilize some of those skills?
1: You know, I wish I had a great story for you about that, but I really don't. I think like, I wish I had some, you know, crazy story where I flew off the cliff one way and my bike went the other and I was perfectly fine, but I had to survive in a canyon for a week. But I don't really have any crazy stories like that. I think it just makes me able to be comfortable wherever I am, right? Because I've had so much discomfort through my wilderness experiences. I've been so far removed from civilization for long periods of time, not like just on the TV show, but more in my own learnings that it's like, I can be perfectly comfortable no matter where you put me. I mean, Sterling will tell you, I sleep on this little thin foam pad because the blow up ones are so disappointing and always leak in the middle of the night. And it's like, I don't really need much to be perfectly at home wherever I am. So I think it makes it really easy to be adventurous and to get out and do the things.
2: I I watched you on one of your videos. It might even been one of the more recent ones where you're trying to blow up the mattress by catching you know and i know so one of the guys had that on our trip and we looked at it, i was like no that's that thing just does not it's, it's like, not it's not great
1: it's terrible whoever yeah. invented that i'm sure they're very nice people but it's a terrible design like <laughs> blow into the thing <laughs>
2: exactly okay so eva first we i want to understand i know you don't have a great story but what do you think maybe are are some essential give me a just a, a couple of essential survival skills that every adventure rider needs to know
1: man it's it all comes down to the basics shelter water fire and food in that order right so you always need to have some sort of shelter and as adventure riders we do a lot of that with the gear that we wear our helmets our you know our climb suits all that kind of stuff But when you get to camp, making sure that you're in a place where you're tuned to the elements. If it's up high and you're in the mountains, make sure you have warm stuff. If it's hot and dry in the desert, make sure you're like sticking to the shade and, you know, not sleeping in a floodplain. Um, Water, always ample water. You know, we're we're desert people now. I'm bringing Sterling into the desert ways Um, and water is always of the essence Learning how to make a great fire is so critical. You know, we're, we're always on fire bands in the summer here and fire restrictions. But in the spring and fall, when you're in a place where there's plenty of water and plenty of rain, having a campfire and making a great campfire and then putting that campfire out completely is absolutely one of the best no-brainer skills to have. And, like, if you want to get nerdy with it. Fire
2: by fire by friction, right? Like, fire I mean, by friction, yeah.
1: totally. Super fun. Hand drill, bow drill. You'll just have to Google that because it's it takes some skill and takes some technique but you know having a fun flint and steel if you really want to nerd out or the go-to is <laughs> big lighters and then i always For recommend- sure
3: sterling um getting back to the bdr uh you, you probably are going to tell me that your favorite bdr is the nevada bdr because that's where you met eva but curious is 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 to whether or not you have a favorite
0: well it's a question i get asked a lot and on the one hand You know, every BDR is unique and has has its really great things. Just like you know, traveling around the world, every country is unique. So you know, I hesitate to answer it, but at the same time, I kind of do have a favorite, and I'll tell you, it's Idaho. It's not the hardest BDR. It's one of the longest BDRs, but I just really feel like it has so so many of the quintessential BDR elements rolled into it in a very pleasing way. That's not a difficult ride that, you know, that, that a lot of people can do it and you get the cool towns, you get the high mountain lookouts, you get the great camping. So you get kind of everything BDRs are known for are, you know, I feel like are really on that route in a good way.
2: Yeah, we've ridden sections of the uh, of the Idaho BDR and and had a ball. Um, in fact, you know, Idaho is quickly becoming one of my favorite states, uh, in, in the mountain West. I mean, uh, I've always been a big fan of Colorado. I've lived out there three or four times. Um, but you get up to Idaho and it's like, wow, this is
3: every really year when too. we start to plan the trip, you know, like where are we are going to go? You know, what, you know, last year it was Utah and we, we had to bag that Utah trip because of all the fire bands and everything. But, um, every year Idaho comes up. It's like, Let's go back to Idaho. Let's go back to Idaho. I love Idaho. All
2: right. Before before I let you go, uh, Eva, I'm going to put you on the spot here for the best adventure motorcycle campfire cocktail.
1: Ooh, the best adventure motorcycle. Wow. That is... Let, let me just... Let's just say, you know, I want to do something crazy, but I want to stay yeah, old-fashioned. So... But the trick is having ice cubes. Because... Mm-hmm. That's the pro trick. So you need to dedicate one of your hydro flasks. You need to plan your route so that you get gas late in the day before heading to your campsite. Fill one of your hydro flasks with ice cubes. Um, Bring a little tiny bottle of bitters, a little bit of sugar and some good bourbon or rye, whatever your preference is. And those ice cubes make all the difference in the world. Like you can drink warm bourbon with sugar in it. Fine. But if you're a pro, you'll keep your cubes cold until you get to camp.
2: Nice. I love it. You earned a special place in my heart because I was somewhere and I got an old fashioned and it came with a maritino cherry. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I saw somewhere on like one of your videos, the only place maraschino cherry should be is on the napkin next to an ice cream sundae. And I was like, that is that is perfect. That's exactly how I feel. If you can't do a brandy cherry, right? Come on,
1: you yep. know? True. So I bring um, these dried oranges, like if we're going to get real cocktail with it, Sterling's bringing the big camera and we're doing it right. I bring these dried oranges for my old fashioned and they're delightful.
2: (laughs) That's great. Okay, real quick, uh, the bikes you guys are riding Sterling, I know you haven't uh, over 20 years, you haven't had that many bikes, right? I've had three GSs. Okay, three GSs. And you're riding now a, a 701, a Husky 701.
0: Yeah, I still have my 1200 GS rally. I've got a, a new 701 long range. And then I also most recently just picked up a new bike that no one has seen yet, but is going to be coming out on the channel. very Awesome.
2: Soon. Oh, okay. Tune, tune in to find out. You know, uh, when we interviewed Simon uh, Cudby, he said, look, I, he went to a 701 because of all of the camera equipment he has to carry around. And just being on like an 890 was super heavy. And he felt like the 701 kind of gave him everything he needed and he was able to maneuver it and get on and off it quick to, to get shots. are you you finding the same with that?
0: Well, you know, that's the bike I rode down to Baja and I did not have any problems whatsoever in in any capacity. It was a great bike. It was fun to ride. It was comfortable on the highway. I pretty much could load it up with everything I needed in terms of the camera gear. Um, So, you know, if that was the only bike I had, I would be just fine. Now the 1200 GS, I'm probably going to take that on my next big ride this summer of because it's a 6,000 mile ride and I'll be doing, a you know, a lot more riding, a lot more longer days in the saddle, more pavement. And so I just think that's maybe the better bike for a ride of that duration, but, but they're both great. And I would be able to do what I need on either one of them.
2: Yeah. But, but I mean, yeah, there's, there's always room for, for one more bike in the garage, right? Depending on uh, what sure. you want to ride.
0: New one is going to surprise everybody.
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> all
2: right, I'm excited. And Eva, you're riding the 850.
1: Yeah, so I have an 850 GS, um, which is for sale. So if anybody's interested in a kitted out 850, call me, look me up. I'm easy to find on social media. Um, but I just put together a really rock star Tenere 700. So Overland Expo does a project every year called the Ultimate Overland Vehicle and Motorcycle Build. So at the start of the year, they send me a bike and I get to deck it out however I want. And I am particularly proud of this tenere that I put together. I do almost all the work on it myself and it is, it's a monster. It's so cool. It's my first bike ever with long travel suspension, which is just super fun. Um, All kinds of cool Moscow stuff, Ruby Lights, Outback Motor Tech, like all my favorite brands are on there. So
2: Are you a Moscow minimalist? Are you like a Reckless 80? Are you a a bigger paneer?
1: Um, Well, I have the Reckless 80 for my 850, which I think is great. You know, there's pros and cons to each system. One of the things that I've noticed, we've got the Backcountry 25s on the new Teneri, and I love them because I love the packing into a rectangle. For me, is a lot simpler than packing into the long, thin dry bags on the Moscow Reckless 80. Um, But you know last night i just got back to town like carrying the the back countries in i'm like okay yeah this is a much heavier piece you're adding a lot of weight um so there's pros and cons to both systems you know i love them both i'm just a big Moscow fan they're yeah. great they make a fantastic product and they're nice we
2: time. are too we are too we you know and and i love the tourtech stuff and i i ran that you know those hard bags aluminum uh, panniers for forever uh, and I ran over my leg one time, and you know, tore my ACL. And I said, "Man, I'm going to soft bags." And you know, that was right when Moscow was was starting to come out with their stuff. And and so I'm on my second system. Um, I did the 35s, and then now went to the Reckless 80 on the the 890. Uh, Sterling, Noreen, Eva, Rupert, thank you guys for joining us on the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. You can find Eva online at EvaRupert.com or at rupert on Instagram and Sterling at NoreenFilms.com or on YouTube at the Motorcycle Travel Channel or on Instagram at Sterling.Noreen. Perfect. And there's only one E in
1: Noreen.
2: I know. I've been mispronouncing your name for a while. Um, and so I, I kind of had to go do some research on that. But... It is forever now burnt. It is forever burned. And in my notes, the E is underlined. So
0: I will. Great with your questions. Holy and your holy research. research. That was awesome. Round of Yay. applause for
1: these guys in there. That All was right. great. What a great interview.
0: Thanks
2: for listening to another episode of the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. For more information about this episode or to learn more about Adventure Motorcycle USA, please visit AdventureMotorcycleUSA.com.